Down goes the Chinese balloon after transiting the entire United States. Republicans prepare to confront Biden on spending, if that is, they can agree on what to push for. Plus, the latest bout of Kamala is a disaster stories. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry. I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Philip Phil Klein, and the sage of authenticity woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a Nashview podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is ExpressVPN. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, we had this drama over the last couple of days. People in Montana looked skywards and said, ah, you know, look, there's the moon. Oh, and there's this other object. I'm looking at my charts. That's not a star. I have no idea what that is. So the Biden administration had to fess up that, oh, actually, it's it's a Chinese surveillance balloon that we've been uh, tracking, but we're not going to shoot it down now over Montana because it, it could hurt a lot of people. So they waited until the weekend when it got back over the, I shouldn't say back over the Atlantic uh, Ocean, when it transited the rest of the continental United States and uh, entered uh, airspace over the Atlantic. Then they shot it down quite dramatically and gratifyingly, but they, they saw this thing you know, coming when it was over the Aleutian Islands and Alaska. Not many people live in the Aleutian Islands in uh, you know, the middle of June. It's minus 20 degrees in the Aleutians and the waves are <clears throat> 20 feet high. So they easily could have taken it down then. And it, it seems very likely here that they never would have said anything unless uh, civilians pointed this thing out and the media began to cover it. NBC was the first to report that it was a, a, a spy, Chinese spy balloon. What do you make of it? Well, Rich, the good news for the Biden administration is that each step of this process, you can see a certain logic to the decision they made. The problem is, is that once the public was informed of the balloon through the photography of a photographer for the Billings Montana Gazette, uh, that the U.S. government response really kind of turned on a dime. It had gone from, you know, yes, we're tracking it, but we're not going to tell the public about it. We're not going to act like we're reacting, like this is an incursion into our airspace. We're going to almost act like we don't notice. And Blinken's trip to Beijing is on schedule, and we're all just going to pretend they don't notice. We want to see where this balloon goes. So there's a logic to this. Okay, maybe you want to capture the balloon. It would be very tough to uh, get obtain it if you shot it down over the Illusion Islands or something like that. Maybe probably be very so, tough. So it's my, my whole grappling hook thing was a fantasy? Couldn't uh, just as, uh, you know, dragged it off? <laughs> yeah, basically, Rich, this is a job for the Tom Cruise of Top Gun, not a job for the Tom Cruise of the Mission Impossible movies. Uh, <laughs> So you could say, okay, you know, you want to capture it. It's going to be tough to capture over Alaska or over the Pacific Ocean. Um, but once this happens, then all of a sudden the Pentagon does the briefing. The Pentagon's responding. It's AO Blinken Friday morning announces, I'm not going to Beijing. This is a egregious violation of American sovereignty in airspace. Okay, yes, good. You are correct, Secretary of State Blinken. It also was a egregious violation of, of American airspace the moment it went over Alaska. So you guys watched and waited for five days. And then all of a sudden, I emphasize metaphorically, they went to DEFCON 1. They went to this, oh, this is a very big deal. And then the moment it was over the Atlantic Ocean, now, the other thing is people are like, well, there's a lot of empty space out there. I know it's big. They said it was the length of three school buses, um, you know, about the structure of like a small plane, basically. 
and uh, they're worried about debris coming down and hurting people. Okay, that, that's that's a reasonable concern. Uh, but then the moment it was over the Atlantic Ocean, it was time to deploy Maverick and Rooster and ride into the danger zone. And the problem is that the second half of the administration's response doesn't really match the first half. And it really does look like the plan was to never tell the American public or not tell the American public for a very long time. And, you know, if if the Billings photographer had not taken that picture, would Blinken still be going to Beijing? Mm-hmm. Was the entire U.S. plan to just operate as normal? Uh, and also, I think the more really much more significant question coming out of this is, all right, why did China want to do this? This is particularly brazen. This, you know, mm-hmm. I guess they've had previous spy balloons, but apparently they um, only were in U.S. airspace briefly and the U.S. didn't detect them until after they left the airspace. Uh, this was very much in your face. This is very much, look what we can do to you. And apparently it lingered over key U.S. facilities and, and military bases that had nuclear weapons and, and all this kind of stuff. This is, you know, you kind of wonder, did somebody in China want to sabotage the Blinken uh, meeting? There's just a whole bunch of questions out of this that point to China being much more aggressive, much more assertive, much more um, antagonistic and confrontational than I think the Biden administration wanted to. They, they like talking a good game about China. And then as our Jimmy Quinn keeps detailing, they keep watering things down and doing half measures and talking about how they want detente. And, you know, it takes two to tango. And China just does not want to do that. So a lot of really troubling questions about this. But uh, I expect Biden's going to walk around and come, come into the State of the Union in his, in his aviator sunglasses and act like, he, act like he shot it down himself. So, Phil, when I first heard about this, uh, I, you know, I was quite mystified. They have satellites. They have, you know, the, the U.S. is honeycombed with, with Chinese spies. Unfortunately, they've, you know, stolen all sorts of secrets, the plans to the F-35, all that kind of thing. So why do they need a, a balloon, you know, the most primitive air technology you can imagine? And uh, at least part of the answer, Andy McCarthy pointed to this yesterday, a New York Times piece said, sure, a satellite can see everything, but th- these balloons can pick up radio signals and whatnot. And apparently we've changed the communications around our nuclear sites. So th- that may have been the surveillance motive here. But Jim mentioned the prior balloons uh, allegedly transiting the United States. And this was part of the administration's spin. Hey, look, don't you know say we're soft on Chinese surveillance balloons. When three of these suckers were over the United States when Trump was president, and then various Trump officials said, wait a minute, <laughs> no one ever told us anything about a surveillance uh, balloons. And then it emerged that no one knew about these balloons, apparently, when um, they they came over the United States during the Trump administration. And they also were not you know lingering over Montana and transiting the whole continental United States. So, so this... This um, uh, spin from the administration doesn't seem very convincing. Yeah, one of the spins is essentially it's not that unusual, which it kind of reminds me of when I it was sort of early in my marriage, my wife was getting used to the you know hate mail that people who write stuff on the internet are subjected to. Um, there was one, I think I was on C-SPAN or something, and it was one deluge of comments on Twitter, like, you dirty staking Jew, stick your head in the oven. And I came, and my wife was a little alarmed, and I was trying to chill her out. I'm like, don't worry, I get stuff like this all the time. (laughs) And she was like, somehow that's not comforting. (laughs) And I kind of feel like that way with this Chinese, that, that basically the defense that Biden is making is essentially, oh, you shouldn't worry about this. This is the Chinese always have all sorts of spy 
up things like flying all over the country spying on all of us. And this happens all the time. Well, somehow, you know, it's kind of worrisome, and it, it does, as um, Jim pointed to, to um, China just feeling much more brazen and much more in your face about being able to do these things. And I, I think that one of the aspects of it is we saw it really came into focus during COVID how dependent we are on China for a lot of not just our you know, getting cheap toys and clothes and socks and so forth, but also uh, a lot of materials that we really depend on um, to just for, you know, things like base products for pharmaceuticals and chips and putting together our phones and all sorts of stuff. And I think that it really should be an eye-opener for a lot of people and a wake-up call in terms of, you know, how closely we want to be linked to China, um, because the obviously the you know the the hope in the '90s for many of us free market types was that as the US and China became more economically entangled, it would sort of loosen um, the tensions and make China more capitalistic and less evil. Um, but actually, the reverse is true, and we've seen where um, U.S. companies have sort of, you know, bent over backwards to follow China's rules to to get into their market space and be able to produce cheap goods there. Um, and I feel like this, you know, might be a good reason to sort of look toward disentangling us ourselves. So, Charlie, an argument from certain sectors of the media in light of these transits during the Trump years is, wow, this this just shows how divided we are, that immediately Republicans are pouncing on the Biden administration's response when this was a, a time for, for national unity. So the Chinese should be really encouraged by the divisions in American society. Well, perhaps the Chinese should be encouraged by divisions, but I think the most bizarre players in this drama are the Democrats and the media, who seem to have no coherent foreign policy at all. I mean, say what you will about the right, but the right's immediate response was, shoot it down, I'll go get my AR-15, I'll do it myself. <laughs> the left seems entirely situational. You know, you go back 10 years... Mitt Romney says Russia's our number one geopolitical foe. Barack Obama makes fun of him. Everyone jumps on board the mockery. And then in 2016, Russia suddenly does become our number one geopolitical foe, but for extremely stupid reasons. Now, Russia is still that in the minds of many people on the left, at the expense of China, which really is our number one geopolitical foe, and seems to inspire absolutely no fear or reaction at all. Imagine if that balloon had been Russian. Imagine the difference in reaction. There's no reason for that. It's actually more alarming that it's Chinese. And then you had the seamless transition from, don't worry, this is nothing. And if we're honest, mild irritation that this newspaper in Montana had pointed it out. Of course, that in and of itself is paradoxical because the press is a hero in most circumstances. But here was an irritant. To look at good old Top Gun Joe. He shot the thing down. I mean, I saw people 
online. Was it Sunday when they shot it down? I saw people move between these two positions in 10 seconds. Between stop wetting the bed, crazy Republicans. This stuff happens all the time. To yeehaw Joe, Dark Brandon's done it again. I see no consistency here whatsoever. So frankly, if I'm going to pick a position, it will be, hey, you Chinese rotters, stop flying balloons over our country or we'll shoot them down. I mean, I think the bottom line here is that this is serious and it should be treated seriously. It's not quite Sputnik, but this is a problem. This is a sovereign country. We do not allow adversaries, or anyone for that matter, without our permission, to fly balloons over our airspace to spy on us. The idea that that would be a big nothing is just absolutely preposterous. And I think, you know, if you're going to be honest about it, the only real case is that, for whatever reason, the Biden administration didn't want people to know, whether it's because it didn't want to freak people out, whether it's because it didn't want to look weak, whether it's because it was dealing with it privately, or we have balloons over China, or that they wanted Antony Blinken's mission to go well, whatever it is, once you get caught, you can't blame the people who noticed, and you can't blame the people who demand action. So I see no coherent worldview here from the Biden administration, from the Democratic Party, from the media... I think this was sort of this odd uh, domestic political reaction. So if that thrills the Chinese, fine. Uh, but the solution to that is to be consistent, not to point to our divisions as if they're the problem. Jim Garrity, next question to you. The appropriate level of alarm over the Chinese surveillance balloon was zero? Meh, it's just a balloon? Or 10, DEFCON 1 from beginning to end? I'd say about a 6 or a 7, particularly if this is a precursor to uh, more across-the-board aggression and uh, attempts to probe our defenses, provocativeness, etc., uh, from China. I, I, I don't think China sent this over there because they wanted to start a war, but I do think they want to see where we're vulnerable, and that should make us more than a little bit nervous. Phil Klein, 0 to 10. I'd say about a five. I think 10 would be something like an invasion of Taiwan. So I, I think there's we need to preserve running room. So I'm going to go with five. Charlie Cook? I think it's a six or a seven, and I think it would be higher if we hadn't shot it down. I think you have to send a message. You have to defend your territorial integrity and make it clear to other nations that you won't tolerate this. And you know, the fact that we do it too is irrelevant. It really is irrelevant. Yes, we spy on people. You know, in World War II, we spied on people too. We still shot German spies when they got mm-hmm. into London. Mm-hmm. That's the game. That's how right. it works. So if we have balloons up there, the Chinese are within their rights to shoot them down and complain to us and cancel diplomatic missions and so on and so forth. That doesn't affect what we do. Mm-hmm. We right. have to respond to this stuff. And... Uh, you know, I, again, I understand if, if the federal government wanted to keep this quiet for whatever reason, but once it had been caught, once it came out, it was absolutely reasonable for everyone watching to say, now do the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, with, uh, I'm also on board six or seven. This is a violation of our sovereign territory. This, it, it's particularly brazen. You know, the, the balloon itself might not be that threatening. Who knows exactly what it's kind of information it's, it's picking up, but just the brazenness 
of it is quite shocking. And then it's it's a mystery why, you know, was there an, an element of the Chinese military who wanted to sabotage this uh, attempted effort at some sort of detente? Or were the Chinese just probing Biden and seeing if he'd be willing just to eat this? And if it hadn't gone public, I think he probably would have, which is alarming in its own right. With that... On a happier topic, Charlie, you're going to tell people about the wonderful benefits of our sponsor, this episode, ExpressVPN. Yeah, and you should think of ExpressVPN as a missile fired from a fighter jet and the balloon (laughs) as big tech, which is across the internet spying on you, harvesting information, profiling you, surveilling you, intercepting you at every single point. Look, I like tech. I like the big tech companies often, but they do spy on us. And you use their products, as I do. And we unfortunately do not all have Elon Musk's $44 billion to go buy up Twitter and exempt ourselves from the panopticon. But the thing is, you don't have to. All you need to do is spend less than $7 a month and fight back by using ExpressVPN. A lot of these big companies... They make their money by spying on you, collecting information, selling it to marketing agencies. They track your searches, your video history, everything you click on, and then they put your personal data on the market. But if you use ExpressVPN, you can anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address, which is the unique identifier every device has, and that allows big tech companies to match your activity back to you. It's not just big tech either. It's also bad actors on the internet. Uh, who want to scam you and steal your stuff. So if you want to avoid that, all you need to do is use ExpressVPN. You can put it on all your devices. It's a single app. and Most of them, you just tap one button on your phone or your computer. They even sell a router now. Americans would call it a router. And, and you can stop them from seeing where you are, what you're looking at. All of your information gets funneled and tunneled through them. If you visit expressvpn.com slash editors right now, you'll get three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash editors. And just in case you need the spelling, it's expressvpn.com slash editors. Thanks so much, Charlie. So, Phil Klein, as we've talked about before, we had this confrontation brewing over extending the debt ceiling, and we know House Republicans want to have a confrontation. They have not figured out on exactly what ground they want to fight, and there are various options that have been uh, brooded about. One is uh, taking domestic discretionary spending back to 2022 levels doesn't sound like a big a big deal but uh, would entail especially if they put defense and veteran stuff off the table um, pr- pretty good nice little cut to um, uh, the rest of the discretionary uh, budget or p- perhaps freezing discretionary spending going forward perhaps doing something uh, around the edges or uh, in the distant future about the retirement age of uh, Medicaid or Social Security although the the Kevin McCarthy has not been enthusiastic about uh, those kind of ideas or and you get kind of policy changes that don't really have much to do with uh, the the debt or anything to do with the debt but are potentially popular and maybe things riders you can get on a, a debt ceiling increase uh, clawing back the uh, IRS funding that 
the Democrats passed last year, border funding or wall funding, work requirements, more work requirements around various uh, federal benefits. But what do you make of it? I mean, as I sort of wrote in more detail in uh, a magazine piece uh, in the the current print issue of National Review, uh, basically it's been very hard to take Republicans seriously on all of this stuff because we had a big fight over the debt ceiling in 2011. Things went really to the brink. Republicans got concessions that on paper were supposed to produce over $2 trillion of spending cuts over time. And yet, as they took power and they went about blowing past all of the spending restraints that had been put in place to, to, to um, basically the various caps and so forth, they wanted to raise military spending. And to do that, they also had to blow up the caps on non-defense discretionary spending. This happened when they controlled the House and the Senate when President Trump was president. So they suspended the debt ceiling in those deals. Kevin McCarthy voted for it. Conservatives like Jim Banks voted for it. And so to turn around now and say, well, now that we have half of the legislative branch, a very slim majority in the House, this is the time that we're going to take to now use maximum leverage with the debt ceiling to be able to try to force cuts. Um, So to me, it just seems like a completely disingenuous strategy, especially when they're ruling out touching Medicare and Social Security, which by far are the two largest uh, components of the debt. And if if you ba- and Jim Banks said Medicaid too is off the table. So if you basically take Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security off the table, defense you're not going to do much toward. You pretty much want to preserve defense spending, interest payments. Um, you can't do anything about that really until you substantially reduce the debt. You're talking about over eighty percent of the budget. So. The idea that they're going to look toward getting a balanced budget um, over the decade um, is just complete fantasy land stuff. And so to me, it just seems like there's a contingent of Republicans that want to chest beat and claim that they picked this huge fight over something um, when they're not really, they're too scared to deal with the real problem, which is actual entitlements. And they've never proven the ability to actually push for spending reforms and enact them when they actually have power and full control of Washington. So in my view, what they should do is if they want to have a fight, it should be part of the regular budget process. There's a potential for a government shutdown at the end of September. And if you don't want to, if, if, some deal isn't cut on spending levels next year. And so you could release a budget. Biden could release a budget. There could be a Senate budget. You could fight over the funding levels and force um, Biden to accept lower funding that it wants and nuke all of his main priorities and then actually spend the time putting together a real spending agenda to get or debt under control, and then have it out if you actually have power 
to enact your vision. Um, but this now it's just sort of a temper tantrum. And, and keep in mind, the debt ceiling has to be raised at some point um, as long as, unless you're balancing the budget immediately, we're going to be taking on more debt. And so you have to raise it at some point. Yeah, Charlie. So you look at the numbers, and if the budget were just discretionary spending, <clears throat> excuse me, we'd be in pretty good shape. You know, both uh, domestic and defense discretionary spending as a percentage of GDP are down from their levels in the 1980s. You know, there's some jags up with the war on terror and the, the financial crisis, but the general trajectory has been down. It's the mandatory spending that's the problem. You know, in 1965, 34% of total federal spending, now 71%. And on a trajectory just to go higher. So regarding Phil's point, if, if you're putting all that stuff off the table, any hope of, of producing anything like a credible balanced budget in 10 years is totally impossible. And in, in the real world, you're just, you're just going to be uh, uh, basically nibbling at the edges. Well, not even that. I think there is an argument that the Republicans are worse here than the Democrats solely in the sense that the Republicans are pretending and the Democrats aren't. Democrats' view of the federal budget is lunatic. It essentially holds that not only do we need to do nothing about our trajectory, but that we ought to lard a whole bunch of new stuff on top of it. That's what they tried to do last year. And this is informed in some quarters informally or formally by modern monetary theory. I resent that, but I resent even more the Republican Party institutionally, which calls that all sorts of names, says that we need to do something about it, and then doesn't. I think it's worth resetting, uh, recapitulating for our listeners what we're talking about here. We currently have about, what, $31 trillion of debt. That's the federal government's total debt. We also have every year budget deficits. When you run a budget deficit, you add to the debt. If somehow the United States Congress managed to balance the budget tomorrow, we would still have $31 trillion of debt. A balanced budget would just stop the debt from growing. And in fact, not necessarily but given that we are subject to rising interest rates and so on. The Republican Party's stated plan is to balance the budget in 10 years' time, which means that if they were somehow to do this, for the next nine years, the budget won't be balanced and the debt will continue to grow. So the situation will get worse. Asked how it intends to achieve this, it says, Hamana, Hamana, Hamana. It's not going to look at the drivers of the debt, which are our entitlements. Now, Republicans cynically will say, well, we said in 10 years. Yeah, but in 10 years, the budget is going to be more driven by entitlements, not less. So what they're essentially saying is that they are content to keep the federal budget running a deficit, and they are content, therefore, for the debt to grow, but they are going to pretend that they are not doing any of these things. And if you look at the numbers, 
once you filter the Republicans' intentions through all of the caveats that we've heard from Donald Trump, that we've heard from um, Jim Banks, that we've heard from Kevin McCarthy, you can clearly see that they are not serious. Because they don't want to touch Medicare, because they don't want to touch Social Security, because some Republicans have said they don't even want to touch Medicaid, they are left with a small portion of the budget. And that portion of the budget contains defense, yes, it also contains discretionary spending, which includes things like the Department of Education. If they were to make the sort of cuts that are necessary, about $1 trillion a year, without raising taxes, people would notice, right? There's no way of doing it without people noticing. You can't cut $1 trillion out of the discretionary budget without people noticing. You're either abolishing the entire defense budget, or you're abolishing all of the discretionary spending in the federal government, or you're doing a bit of both. But even if you do a bit of both, you're still halving the defense budget and halving discretionary spending, you know, that's that's getting rid of aircraft carriers. That's getting rid of the Department of Education and the Department of Energy and farm subsidies and so on and so forth. And if they don't have the guts to say out loud what we all know deep down, which is that our entitlements are unsustainable, do we really think that they're going to go to the public and say we need to cut the defense budget in half or we need to abolish whole departments? Now, don't get me wrong. I would love them to abolish whole departments. I think a lot of the departments that are in the discretionary budget shouldn't be there and are unnecessary and often unconstitutional. But that's not the point. The point is that the same lack of resolve on entitlements is by definition going to extend out to discretionary spending. And if it doesn't, if what they're really talking about is nibbling around the edges or doing what you just described, which is to bring the discretionary budget back to 2022 levels, then they should stop talking as if they're going to fix the problem because that won't do it. That will do nothing of the sort. That will just leave us on our current trajectory, which is to spend more every year than we get in, to keep borrowing money and to do so until we all fly into the sun. So, Jim, I, I admire the uh, Republicans who want to do something about en entitlements. But the thing is, if you if you're going to take on entitlements, you have to tell voters ahead of time. You know, you can't run a campaign not talking about it at all, denying that you have any intention to do it. When Democrats point to the the Rick Scott uh, plan, you know, with with its 50 items or what, whatever, you know, one or two touched on this, and, and then and then go and take on this this massive change in uh, uh, or or even any change in, in these very popular programs. You need to to uh, build some sort of uh, mandate for it. You know, Mitt Romney, if he had won in 2012, would have had the the credibility to take this on, but he didn't in part because he, he talked about this and th this is the, the ultimate paradox and the problem and the dilemma and why the debt keeps on climbing is that Paul Ryan was right on the policy about what we should do about entitlements and Donald Trump unfortunately is right about the politics. Oh, Rich, you silly goose. You can't tell the public you intend to tackle entitlement reform and that perhaps some people will get fewer uh, you know, Social Security, Medicaid, or Medicare than they currently get because then they won't vote for you. <laughs> so that's what you know, Republicans have come up with this mm -hmm. very simple system, which we just don't talk about that ever. Uh, and then once we're in power, we try to pretend that they actually want to do something about it. I, I, over the years, my position on this has changed somewhat because uh, you know, very much – and Phil and Charlie have laid out – you know enormously eloquent 
and completely right on the facts and right on the policy basis. You know, I'm Generation X. We've been hearing about the ticking time bomb of Social Security for an entire generation. Year after year, white paper after white paper, you know, major report after major report, and nothing really ever got done. And became this question, particularly post-Romney in 2012, is it the job of the Republican Party to scream, to drag the American electorate kicking and screaming towards a policy outcome that it absolutely refuses to pursue? The American electorate wants to believe that Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare are always going to be there. There's always going to be enough money. Interest on the debt is never going to get to be so big that it becomes a squeezes out other spending priorities. Everything is going to be fine. There's, you know, always some extra pot of gold or maybe we'll just tax the rich and that will take care of it. Or, unfortunately, in some Republican circles, we'll just eliminate waste, wink, wink. We'll eliminate foreign aid and that'll take care of that $31 trillion debt. Don't you worry. Um, The American people have a wildly unrealistic sense of the national finances and Republicans, a lot of Republicans, have done everything possible, talked until they're blue in the face to try to emphasize this. And Americans just don't want to acknowledge it. So the question is, do you, you know, continue to emphasize this and lose elections or do you downplay it and start winning elections and, you know, eliminate spending where you can here and there, knowing it's not going to make a very big difference in the, in, the, in the grand state of things? I'd be perfectly happy if House Republicans said, OK, we know we got to raise the debt ceiling. We don't like doing it. We're going to pick one thing. Now, they could pick, there are all kinds of good priorities, border spending and all kinds of stuff like that. But how about all that money for, say, the 80,000 new IRS agents? Say, all right, we're not doing that. That's our that's our reward for going along with the debt ceiling hike. That's our one demand. You don't, you know, we give up something, you give up something, and we all live happily ever after for another couple of years until we have to go through this again. That would work. You know, there's a certain argument that you know, particularly was popular during the the Trump era. This idea of like, if you're going into negotiations, make the most most outrageous demand you can, and then you negotiate down from that. Okay, I can see the 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 argument for that, the approach for that. All of these negotiating tactics assume you know what you want. (laughs) You know what your red lines are. You know what your uh, bottom line is and what you need to get out of it for this to be a successful negotiation. And I think the problem is deep down Republicans don't actually know what they want to get out of these negotiations. Mostly they just know they want to fight. So Phil Klein, exit question to you. Republicans will succeed in reducing spending in the debt ceiling fight even if just by a dollar, yes or no? I would say – no, in reality, I mean, in paper, they might claim that they reduce something, but in reality, when we look back at it, um, there won't be savings. Charlie Cook. Yeah, I think so. I think that'll be a superficial deal, but it won't be enough to make any difference to anything. Jim Garrity. I think they might get $2, Rich. <laughs> I'm going to up it. I think 3 to $5. No, I think they'll, they'll get this something. This is how inflation it'll, started. <laughs> it'll be in a, in a minor key, though. With that, let me pause, do a quick plug for NR Plus, digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. If you enjoy our journalism, if you think our journalism is important, if you think it's crucial to the future of this country that uh, uh, we advance a conservatism that can win please sign up for NR+. Plus. It is uh, perhaps the, the most important way you can support our valuable journalism, and then you get all sorts of benefits from it, including no longer having to worry about our paywall, including not seeing as many ads if you sign up and log in, especially the most obnoxious ads. 
disappear and you can dig deeper into our community, commenting on articles and blog posts and getting invited to exclusive events and calls with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. So please, please, please sign up today or tomorrow or the day after and join tens of thousands of your fellow Nashville readers as a member of NR+. So Jim Garrity, we've had some excellent Pulitzer-worthy journalism about Kamala Harris's political prospects. There was a piece in the Washington Post and about a week ago, and then one in the New York Times, what it was, was yesterday, I, I believe. And the, they're both basically on the same theme, that Democrats are freaked out about how bad she is and about how the possibility that she would be at the center of Democratic politics if something happened to Joe Biden or Joe Biden decided not to run. Uh, but the New York Times piece was just particularly just had all sorts of details that were uh, completely delicious. Uh, I, I just didn't want this piece uh, to end. And then kind of near the end, like three quarters in, you had some of her allies saying, you know what? Uh, OK, it was taking her a little little time to adjust to the role of a vice president, but she's used to being a prosecutor and a lawyer. So she's not really comfortable with symbolism or politics. Yeah, she's only been vice president for, you know, two years and a senator four years before that and California attorney general before that and, and, and all that. Look, um, for the better part of two years, we've seen two types of stories written about Kamala Harris uh, by big major mainstream media institutions. And they usually come out eh, once every month, once every two months, sometimes, you know, in rapid succession like these. And they have two themes. The first theme is Vice President Kamala Harris is in trouble and is having, you know, difficulty finding her footing and difficulty, you know, de defining her role and all that stuff. Or the second one is kind of a more optimistic one. After some early troubles, Kamala Harris has turned a corner and big things are coming and you know, all kind of stuff. Um, the the Washington Post one. And it, what makes most of these recent pieces kind of interesting is that how much it quotes other Democrats who really want to see Kamala Harris succeed and these folks can't deny what they're seeing anymore. Uh, the Post once said that, you know, they talked to a dozen Democratic leaders in key states, and they said that her tenure has been, quote, underwhelming, marked by struggles as a communicator, and at times near invisibility, leaving many rank-and-file Democrats unpersuaded that she has the force, charisma, and skill to mount a winning presidential campaign, unquote. A lot, you know, this all draws back to what are Democrats going to do in 2024? Biden indicates that he wants to run for another term. But the guy's 80. Uh, we've all seen him doddering around the stage. He doesn't seem on the top of, you know, of his game. And the idea of him having some health issue is really not all that inconceivable between now and Election Day 2024. And so the question is, God forbid that happens, could Harris step into the role of president and step into the role of the Democratic nominee in 2024? And Democrats have a lot of worries about that. Now, what makes this significant I, I, is because for the better part of these years, we've had this message of, okay, Kamala Harris has had some rough patches, but she's she's really good. Trust us. You're just you're, you're going to see. You're going to see. And from the very beginning, I, I went back through this in a corner post yesterday. There were a whole bunch of people on Biden's staff who did not want him to pick Kamala Harris. We all remember her 2020 presidential campaign, which ended before the contest began. We all remember Tulsi Gabbard gutting her like a fish on her prosecutorial record in that debate. Um, the, the separation between the image of Kamala Harris and the reality of Kamala Harris has always been pretty bad. And Democrats are just waking up to it now in January 2020 and February 2023. 
It, it, they can't deny it. They, they could always, ah, this is some, she's got to hit the ground running or, ah, she's had some early stump. No, this, this is what you get. There is no better Kamala Harris waiting to be unveiled out there. And uh, I was gonna say, and so like the Democrats are in this situation where for years and years, they didn't want to believe what they were seeing. And they wanted to believe that there was something else out there that was just going to come out like a, like a cocoon. You know, she was going to come out and be a butterfly. And no, nope, that's just a, she's a caterpillar. That's what she is. You're going to have to deal with it. And they're in real trouble because of that. So, Phil, another telling detail from the Times story, even though the Hillary camp denies it, people relate that they've had private conversations with Hillary where Hillary says, oh, there's no way that Kamala could clear a field. She doesn't have the political instincts. And Hillary Clinton, let me tell you, she's an expert on not having political instincts. So if she thinks this about Kamala, it's a very, very bad sign. But at least... The Democrats are aware of Kamala's vulnerabilities and weaknesses, whereas in 2016, they actually tried to clear the field for a Kamala-like candidate, namely Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, there is a very real problem. I mean, one is it starts off with obvious, um, not elephant in the room, which is Biden's age and his obvious mental decline, which is clear to everybody. And the difficulty is sort of, as I sort of point out before, a lot of people talk about life expectancy and so forth. Can he survive in office, um, particularly if he gets reelected? Um, but what people don't focus on is sort of that there are a lot of stages between being old and death where you could decline a lot and there's a less clear solution to what really happens if there's a significant amount of decline that stops short of necessarily being completely incapacitated. And at what point does the sort of 25th amendment take over? And when you have Harris who nobody feels confident in, it might err on the side of keeping Biden and propping him up in a way that's kind of dangerous. Like it, it's in, in terms of him just not being mentally fit to be able to execute um, the, the duties of the presidency. Uh, so it's actually, it's actually a quite a worrisome scenario, particularly if Republicans can't get their act together and, and Biden manages to recover enough to get reelected. Um, what I find fascinating about Harris is that basically the the image she has now is just totally different than the image she had before, even among her critics. Because the in when she was senator, we heard all about her you know, these sort of viral her. Um, cross-examining or f firing questions at some Trump administration official and, you know, across the, the left-wing media would get these videos of uh, Harris destroying some sort of, um, you know, Trump administration official at a hearing. Um, and during the, the campaign, she had her takedown of Biden over the busing and so forth. And if anything, the criticism was she was kind of an authoritarian. That was clearly the, the Tulsi Gabbard attack. But it was sort of distinct from her current image, which is just saying a bunch of 
absurd random stuff that is just pure platitude and makes no sense and sounds like Chauncey Gardner uh, on a bad day. And so it basically, that image is really bizarre. And I don't know if there was some sort of image consultant that she had who was sort of, you have to get beyond your your image as somebody who's mean and this tough prosecutor type and be more likable. So she just started laughing at everything and just being really silly and saying a bunch of stupid stuff. But whatever it is, it's it's like it's not even like she's a bust as vice president. She's a she's problematic in different ways that all of her critics thought. Charlie, of course, at the end of this New York Times story, you had to have at least one Kamala Harris supporter. And in this case, it's the historian Douglas Brinkley, who said a lot of ridiculous things lately. But he says Joe Biden just needs to let Kamala be Kamala, which might be a good idea if Kamala Harris had any idea who Kamala Harris is, but she clearly doesn't. No, she might need to recruit the help of a Venn diagram to work that one out. If I would the Biden administration, the first thing that I would do at this point in my presidency is institute a blanket ban on historians giving me advice. <laughs> right from the beginning, historians have been the Achilles heel of this administration. Historians managed to convince Joe Biden that he was FDR, LBJ. Historians helped Joe Biden write that disastrous Star Wars speech at Independence Hall. And historians, well, yeah, telling yeah, him that Kamala the, Harris just the needs to one. be... John, John Meacham supposedly wrote the line about uh, modern-day Jeff Davis's... Uh, ah, there you are. There you are. And, There's another one. Then, I, I think he... Sh- they also briefly, historians, convinced uh, Obama, Barack Obama, that he was Teddy Roosevelt at, at, uh, at a juncture in his, his administration. Historians have been a real problem. And I say that as somebody who studied history at university and who likes historians, but who likes actual historians. Historians who study history and follow history where history goes, not historians who uh, reverse engineer history to meet their contemporary partisan preferences, which is, of course, what we're really talking about. The idea that anyone should let Kamala be Kamala is so risible that it beggars belief. The last thing Kamala should be is Kamala. The last thing anyone should be is Kamala, in fact. All of that talk about these little girls looking up at Kamala Harris. Don't let anyone be Kamala. Yeah. When she came into office, we got all this saccharine, emetic pieces in the press about these little girls looking up and saying, I could be just like her. No, no, that's what you don't want to do. She is a cautionary tale. Perhaps it was useful, actually, for all those little girls. Is that Now they know that there are two people in the world that they should not be like at all costs. One is Hillary Clinton. The other is Kamala Harris. There are plenty of female role models at the moment, throughout history, in politics and elsewhere. Kamala Harris is not going to be one of them. The, the, the problem the Democrats have here, I thought, was summed up by a line in the piece that none of you has mentioned. And that was that the Democrats know at one level that they would have to get rid of Kamala Harris if Bush came to shove, but that they are nervous about doing so because it might offend certain groups. And what that meant in practice 
was that there is a tension between how Kamala Harris actually is as an individual human being and how Kamala Harris has been sold under the identitarian rubric that the Democrats have internalized. They sold Kamala Harris as a trailblazer. Her being vice president in and of itself was supposed to improve things. She was the first woman. She was the first half African-American. She was the first half Indian. The combination of these things presented some magical Captain Planet-style ring meld that led to great virtue. And of course, it didn't, because she doesn't have what it takes. But it's very difficult to go back on it. It's very difficult to explain why it was so good to have this historic identitarian uh, logic in the office of vice president, but why it wouldn't be a good idea to elevate it into the vice uh, the, the presidency. But if they want to get rid of her, that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to take somebody who was sold as a great leap forward out uh, of the stage. And I actually think that's going to be a lot more difficult than some Democrats I've spoken to and then the press coverage suggests. I think that there's going to be a great deal of pushback and internal strife. And, you know, if I were rooting for the Democrats to win the next presidential election, I would be praying that Joe Biden stays healthy and alive. Because if he doesn't, the party's internal contradictions, which grow by the day, might well come out into the open in a way that would be unpleasant and destructive for them. So, Jim, really quickly, speaking of that uh, health, healthy and alive standard for, for Joe Biden... <laughs> These these polls, this is just these are a couple of the most amazing polls I, I've ever seen. Right, he's he's uh, he's in the mainstream of the Democratic Party. He, he punched above his weight legislatively. Unfortunately, the last two years pulled a rabbit out of a hat in, in midterms. A lot of help from Republicans. Yet you had these polls. There's an AP Nork Center poll. Only 37 percent of Democrats want Biden to seek a second term. Uh, Washington Post, ABC News poll, 31% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents want Biden to, to be renominated. What, what accounts for those numbers in your view? I think at the heart of it, Joe Biden is the president of the United States, but he's not really. And no, that's not a 2020 conspiracy theory or something like that. It's that he is 80 years old. We can all see this is not the Joe Biden we remember from his years as vice president or the Joe Biden we remember from his years in the Senate. This is a very old guy who gets tired very easily, whose train of thought meanders at best. You never know when you're going to get a story about corn pop. And, you know, tonight at the State of the Union, he's going to go out. He'll give a good speech reading off a teleprompter. He won't have to answer any questions. You notice Biden doesn't answer any questions anymore or very rarely does. Because you never know when you're going to get a, that was four or five days ago, man. Or, ah, you're being a wise guy with me. You know, that he will come across as cranky and cantankerous and prickly and, you know, defensive and just completely mess up the facts. And this past weekend, in the, I wrote in the corner, you know, the Wall Street Journal had this excellent story about how, yes, you know, the Department of Energy is contemplating regulations that would effectively ban almost all natural gas stoves. I think they said that 20 of the 21 most popular brands could not meet these new regulations that they're 
uh, being posed. So it's, a, it's not. Is it? A, does the Biden administration want to ban gas stoves? Well, Biden says he doesn't. But does he know what his energy department's doing? Has he been briefed on this? Does he remember what he's been briefed on this? Well, he's probably napping right now. They're, they're going to call a lid. So he's president, but he's not really president. I think Americans kind of recognize you really can't have a president who only works from like eh, 10 in the morning to about 2 in the afternoon. So Phil Klein, X question to you. Percentage odds that Kamala Harris will one day be president of the United States one way or the other, whatever the circumstances are from zero? No, never, ever, ever, ever going to happen to 100%. It's a luck. I'd probably <laughs> say around 20%. Um, it's, it's not zero, but there are, you know, Biden's old, there are, you know, there's a certain trajectory, um, and a certain, um, at, at the end of the day, we're in a two party system. So anyone who could get the nomination of a party, um, could become president and she has the possibility that she could be, um, end up being a nominee um, just by default, just as Biden ended up being nominated. So I'd give it about a 20% chance. Charlie Cook? Yeah, I think that's about right. And for the same reasons, we live in a two-party system and the Republicans are not especially strong at the moment, but you would have to hope if you're a Democrat that she gets nowhere near that nomination. Jim Garrity, we have two 20s on the board. I might put it closer to like 30, 35%, but almost all mm -hmm. of that is her inheriting the office, uh, ascending mm -hmm. to the office upon Biden having some health issue either between now and Inauguration Day 2025, or, you know, Biden could win another term. Uh, I, I'm not rooting for that. I don't like that possibility, but it's incumbents tend to get reelected. Uh, and if Biden gets a second term, it's very hard to envision him finishing that second term. So I'm more with Jim than with Phil and Charlie. I'm going to put it 29%. I just can't quite get myself above 30. But, you know, there's some chance she becomes president of the United States <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> prior to January 2025. There's a, a chance she'd win the nomination battle, some chance, not maybe high odds if Biden steps aside. And then there's probably a 50% chance that she becomes president of the United States at some point if Joe Biden is reelected. So... I don't know what the exactly the math is there, but I'm going to put it at around 29%. With that, Jim, let's hit a few other things before we go. You have been reading the masterpiece of the great Paul Johnson, who passed away a few weeks ago, our sometimes contributor and our friend, a cruiser with National Review, and you've been reading Modern Times. Yeah, I'm mortified to announce that I had not read any Paul Johnson books. I knew who he was. I probably read some of his essays. Uh, I know that he was a friend to many at National Review. And, you know, when Johnson passed away, it felt like all of my colleagues were said, modern times, the world from the 20s to the 90s, is just like the Rosetta Stone of, of a history of the 20th century. And I was like, okay, this, everybody I know is raving about this. I got to go get it. Well, lo, lo and behold, it's out of print. And I'm going on to Amazon. I'm going on to the various book sites. Getting your hands on a copy of Modern Times is pretty challenging. 
In fact, it's one of the great challenges of the modern times. Um, but I did manage to get it, and uh, one chapter in, and I'm, I see why I see what all the hype is about. Um, the first chapter kind of begins with the Einstein and the theory of relativity, and it kind of sets you up for the post World War One. Uh, state of the world and just paragraph after paragraph, you know, you know, section after section, you're like, whoa, wait, I didn't realize it went that way. Wow, well, you know, Woodrow Wilson, believe it or not, was actually initially a skeptic of the League of Nations uh, and eventually came around to it. So there's all these little like aspects of history that your your regular high school or college textbooks really never got into. Um, so I understand what the hype is about. I'm enjoying it, and I would encourage anybody else to read it. What, if you can find this book, which is apparently one of the great challenges of our era. Yeah, it should not, should not be hard to find. So uh, if, if I remember correctly, I did ask him once on a cruise about his method. And again, if I remember correctly, he said what he would do, just read up a lot on you know a, a given topic and then just take uh, voluminous notes, I think on index cards. And then, then he'd have the cards and, and work from those and create his uh, narrative. And I, obviously a, a wonderful writer on top of everything else. So, Phil, I hesitate to mention this because I know there's going to be a rush to Netflix or wherever you can find this film, but you've been watching Bardo, whatever that is. Yeah, it's um, an interesting sort of avant-garde um, Mexican movie. <laughs> two words you don't hear together. If only if only the great Mike Patemra were still with us, he 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 would uh, have seen it and be able to discuss this with well, you. Actually, I um, a famous director who directed Amoros Peros and uh, Birdman, which came out a few years ago, and The Revenant. So he's sort of a famous uh, director. Bird, Birdman was the movie with the drums. Yeah. I hated that movie. So anyway, so the um, basically the movie is uh, it's sort of his kind of version of Fellini's Eight and a Half in a way, sort of a director reflecting on his career and what's going on in his life. But it's done in a very kind of bizarre way, and there's a lot of really weird stuff, but also some visually dazzling stuff and just so much interesting things in there and i by the end of it um i wasn't sure if it, i was sort of being scammed into thinking it was interesting or if it was legitimately good or just pretentious and over the top and there's something that happens at the end that gives a new perspective about what was going on in the whole movie and so I'm almost tempted to watch it again, even though it's almost three hours, um, knowing what I know now to decide if I like it or not. So I'm not sure. See, 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 Charlie, how considerate Phil is. He, he says there's something at the end that changes your perspective, but he doesn't actually tell you what That's it right. is. Right. I have to say, I cannot wait not to watch that movie. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm going to not watch it in 4K, I think. <laughs> so, Charlie, what have you been up to? Not that. I have been hanging out with my five-year-old, my now five-year-old, and he just cracked me up yesterday. I went to pick him up from school, and I got him home, and he said, can I have some lunch? I said, what do you want for lunch? And he, he said, I want ramen noodles. So apparently this is a big thing for him, is ramen noodles. Wow, he's, so, a, he's a, almost a college student already. Well, wait for it. Exactly. So he's sitting eating his ramen noodles. He told me how to make them. He's buzzing around me, explaining at every stage. Ramen noodles. 
Then he goes quiet for a moment. Then he says, Daddy, can we listen to Enter Sandman by Metallica? (laughs) Okay. So I put on Enter Sandman by Metallica, which I think he's heard on the radio or during football or something on the TV. He's a Mariana fan. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sitting looking at him and he's eating ramen noodles and listening to Metallica. And I thought, wow, you you could be a college student right now. (laughs) It just looked so funny. So I wrote a column on this preposterous notion that slavery was at the foundation of capitalism. So I had to watch episode four of the Hulu 1619 project on this theme. And just let me say, it is horrid. It is preposterous. One, it relies heavily on this neo-Marxist historian named Robin Kelly. So the idea of the 1619 Project was always this kind of neutral pursuit of the truth, which is always ridiculous, but it's totally blown up by this uh, episode where Nicole Hannah-Jones is uh, uh, sitting with this, having this warm conversation with a, a Marxist. And two, it draws a direct line. You can almost not believe this is happening as it's about to happen. You're like, she's not gonna do this, is she? There's no way she's going to do this, right? And she does. She draws a direct line from slave plantations in the uh, uh, in, in the um, South in the you know 18th century, 19th century to Amazon warehouses in 21st century America. The whole thing is is self discrediting. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? So I may have mentioned Andy McCarthy last week, and I'd obviously I tried to shake it up a little, but this he's, uh, Andy's latest two pieces on the Chinese balloon take all of Andy's uh, innate insight, analytical rigor, uh, sharp thinking, uh, on provocative lines of inquiry, everything we've come to expect from his legal analysis, and he applies it to the U.S. response to the Chinese spy balloon. And they just kind of leave you shaking, you know, nodding your head in agreement, shaking your head at the lines from the Biden administration and the explanations that don't quite add up. Um, and it's just come more of what we've come to expect from Andy and just uh, really just required reading. Phil Klein, what's your pick? I would like to highlight... Um a great piece from Dan McLaughlin, the myth of Ronald Reagan and the Nazi death camps. I'm sure many of you have heard the story about how Reagan supposedly had this um, fabrication that he helped. He was at the Nazi death camps when they were being liberated, and he was the photographer and uh, recorded a lot of the footage. And this is something that's sort of been circulated for a long time to demonstrate that Reagan didn't have a, a real understanding of the relationship between reality and fantasy. Um, but it turns out that there is no actual evidence of Reagan having said it. The only evidence came from a sort of second-hand accounts that were relayed through multiple sources and translated from English to Hebrew and back again. And he just goes through the all the evidence that has been presented for it that but and all the evidence that suggests that he didn't really say it or that he was essentially a you know, part of a film unit um, and he sort of saw the early footage. Um, 
And so it's really worth doing, looking at, because I think it's something that, that's just been out there for a long time. And unlike Biden, who makes up stories where we have video evidence of him making up the stories, that there's really no evidence of Reagan ever telling this story that's been attributed to him. Charlie? I like... Black white supremacy is not uh, really a thing. Oh, there is that you yours? Go. Yeah. By Wilfred Riley, who describes in particular the notion that policing is the direct result of slavery as, well, stupid, and explains why. I mildly resent that this case has to be made because it really is that preposterous, but Wilfred Riley does it very well. So, since Charlie picked that column, I'm going to pick all of Wilfred's prior columns, just because he's he's been writing a column for about a month or so for National Review now, and we're completely delighted. He is a fearless advocate of uncomfortable truths. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Phil. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to ExpressVPN, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.